Welcome to The Honest Report, a weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. The condemnation of Kanye West is reaching fever pitch, intensifying after he was banned from Twitter for this anti-Semitic tweet. DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Now one of the biggest names in sports facing backlash for spreading anti-Semitism, NBA star Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets shared a link last week on social media to a 2018 film that's been described as anti-Semitic. Here's your host, Rob Walker. Two months after Israelis voted in their fifth election in three years, Israel finally has a new government, of sorts. Though Benjamin Netanyahu is back as Israel's Prime Minister, the composition of the new governing coalition is different than what has been in the past. And some new members of the government, as a result of their right-of-center views, have attracted some criticism from the news media and beyond. But how much of the criticism of Israel's government is accurate, and how much of it is simply a relic of knee-jerk anti-Israel sentiment? To help separate fact from fiction, our guest on this week's podcast is Lahav Harkov, Lahav is the senior contributing editor and diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post newspaper and is very well connected to the country's top lawmakers and diplomats. Welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Lahav Harkov, welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. The pleasure is all mine. Uh, You are, of course, the senior contributing editor uh, and as well as the diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. So you have your finger on the pulse uh, obviously very, very closely when it comes to uh, Israeli politics and governance. Describe for us, uh, you know, here we are uh, early in the new year. What exactly is the status of Israel's uh, government at this point? Well, we have a new government. Um, It's been sworn in officially. And they're now, as we speak, literally, they're having all of these ceremonies in the different ministries where they switch ministers. Um, and almost every ministry is having this uh, ceremony, which is normal, um, happens every time they switch governments. And a, and a few, there are a few examples of people who are too petty to meet with each other. <laughs> um, the main one being the prime minister's office. So um, Lapid, the now departed prime minister, and uh, our new old prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, they actually had a brief meeting. They had a 45 minute meeting, which you, you kind of have to wonder like how much information that you actually need for the job you can get in 45 minutes when the job is prime minister of Israel. Um, and they refused to have a public ceremony because they can't stand each other. Uh, but other lower level ministers and including some of the more senior ministers are, are not being as petty. Now, obviously, a lot has been made of, uh, of the number of elections Israel's had, you know, uh, five and three years. Help, help people understand a little bit, not so much in terms of the model of governance, the proportional representation that Israel has, but the, more so the breakdown of the, uh, the votes in Israel. What is causing this sort of repeated deadlock? The reason for the repeated deadlock is that the parties have and almost all of the parties, you know, with the exception of a, a small amount of seats, like in this election, it was maybe like five seats. In the last election, it was like maybe 10 seats. Um, but other than that small amount, all of the parties either are committed to being in a government led by Netanyahu or are boycotting Netanyahu. 
So th there's almost nobody in the middle range there that could be like a kingmaker for one side or the other. And, and then it's often hard to reach a solid, and well, the reason it's hard, it's hard to reach a solid majority for either side. And, and you would say, well, if it's split roughly half and half, then like, why does no one get a majority? And the reason for that is that most of the Arab uh, politicians in the Knesset don't actually want to sit in any government. So you end up having a situation where you're playing without a full deck, kind of. Um, I know people say that about someone who's crazy, but in this case, if you think of the 120 seats of the Knesset as a deck of cards, right? You're not playing with the full deck of cards, you're missing some of the cards, and yet you still need a 61 seat, at least, majority to form a coalition. Um, so the, the, you could say it's the divisiveness of Netanyahu, or you could say it's the, the pettiness, stubbornness, the refusal to accept reality of the other side, you know, it's, it's all about how you see these things. Um, but either way, it, end, it has boiled down to the Netanyahu question, and that has made it difficult. But this difficulty in both informing a government and in maintaining power is, is it a fairly new phenomenon that we weren't seeing 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago? So Israel has had unstable governments for a long time. You, you talk about, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, I'll say 20, I guess it's 24 years ago now, right? You had an Ehud Barak's government that lasted um, less than two years. Um, so this, this kind of thing happens. In 2015, we had a government. 2013 to 2015, the government lasted uh, less than two years in total. Um, so Israel has always had sort of the some level of, of some potential, let's say, for instability in its coalitions because of the way um, the proportional system works. Um, and in this case, there was sort of nobody willing to just like, you could say, get over themselves or get over the or just uh, willing to break promises in politics, which is another thing, another sort of issue that's come up here. Um, and in some cases, people did break their promises, and yet it still didn't work out. So, you know, the the it's different in the sense that we've never had, for example, multiple elections um, in a row, the way we've now had in, in 2019, 2020, we had three in a row. Um, but in the sense that there's always been this potential because there are no laws to prevent it. No one sort of anticipated that we would be in this sort of five year crisis. Um, it, so in that way, it's worse. So a lot of ink has been spilled, if you will, describing Israel's new government as its uh, most right wing uh, ever. Do you think that that uh, term is warranted? You know, I do. And it's interesting because in 2015, after that election, people kept saying this is the most right wing government ever. And I kept saying, no, no, it's not the most right wing government ever was the one right before Yitzhak Rabin became prime minister in the 90s. So 1991 to 1993, that was an entire coalition of people who opposed a two state solution. And and in 2015, there was more of a mix. Um, but <laughs> moving to this year, um, I think that, yes, I think that this coalition gives the 1991 coalition a run for its money and then some, um, particularly because of the prominent presence of the sort of the Kahana, Rabbi Meir Kahana inspired party of Utsmayu Yudit, led by Itamar Ben-Gvir, 
which, um, you know, was once considered so extreme, you know, Rabbi Kahana was considered so extreme that people would walk out of the room when he gave speeches in the Knesset, uh, including Yitzhak Shapir, who was the prime minister of what I formerly considered the most right-wing government in 1991. Um, and also, you know, laws were eventually passed to ban people who campaign on racism from running for Knesset because of Khan. Um, now, Ben Gvir and the people who are in his party have been smart enough to not say things that would have them be banned on account of racism. And also Ben Gvir himself says that he he's not exactly like Kahana. He's sort of, you know, inspired, but also adjusted and changed things. But he's still let's say in that vein, even if he moderated by five degrees or something. Um, and, and so to me, that really colors a lot of the coalition and the fact that, you know, Likud makes up, their seats make up half the coalition, but the other half are all religious parties. Now I'm not like, I'm not delegitimizing religious parties or religious people in any way, um, but you know, that also is something that trends to the right, not only in terms of like land of Israel questions, but also just um, socially conservative and, and in some cases really extreme social conservatism. So you mentioned Otzma Yehudit, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the right of center party that's making a lot of the news. In your, in your mind, what explains its recent sort of rise in the Knesset? Is it a uh, congealing of different smaller factions together to become electable, or is it that they become more successful in gaining votes from the, uh, the electorate? Well, look, back in 2019, um, there was no chance that they would have gotten into the Knesset on their own. In this election, for a while, they were really talking about running on their own, and they were threatening to do it until the very last minute. And they were passing the threshold and it was the more traditional sort of religious Zionist parties that were shaky as to whether they would pass up the threshold. So I, I think that they're originally getting into the Knesset sort of on the backs of, of sort of conservative, lowercase c conservative religious Zionists, you know, as opposed to the conservative movement. Um, but uh, the, the very sort of conservative, socially conservative, religiously conservative uh, religious Zionists, them running together, it gave them a, a form of like legitimacy and gave them more of a presence in the Knesset. Um, but as for their rise in, in the election last year, so getting used to saying last year, <laughs> but uh, just a couple months ago, I think it actually has a lot to do with events that happened since the previous election. So, and specifically Operation Guardian of the Walls, which was the first time where we saw the sort of operation in Gaza and the, the attacks from Hamas on Israel sort of uh, leak over into Israel proper among Israeli Arabs. And so in mixed um, Jewish Arab cities like Lod, like Akko, um, and others, there were Yafo, for example, there were um, attacks by Israeli Arabs on Jews. Um, someone so far to call it pogroms, but you know, you had serious cases where people were, I don't know, stopped at a red light and pulled out of their car and beaten within an inch of their life. There were synagogues that were burned down, multiple synagogues in Israel. Um, and people were shot, people of all political stripes were shocked, but some people's reaction to it was to say, you know, we need someone who's going to really crack down and there's like a, you know, an enemy within. And numerically, of course, this is a minority of Israeli Arabs, but people's reaction to it 
you know, many people understandably suddenly felt unsafe in their homes. Um, and Ben Veer definitely capitalized on that feeling. Um, and one of the other things that happened with, with this is that the new government led by Naftali Bennett was formed very shortly after that Gaza operation ended. And it was sort of like, you know, to use Twitter language, it was memory hold, you know, it was like as if the, the mainstream wasn't really talking about what had happened that much anymore. And, and Ben Greer was talking about it and he was going to those towns and he was saying that, you know, the police need to crack down. Um, so I, I really think that he rose on that wave on people's on people's understandable fears following, you know, the previous year. Now, um, certainly, I mean, your role is uh, at the Jerusalem Post. You are both a uh, journalist, but you're also a commentator. And like I said, you, you know, as you alluded to, you're active on Twitter and so on. So okay. I'm curious for your thoughts, Lahav, in terms of how you would describe the international media's description because on one hand as you've as you've said israel's new government uh is arguably uh, its composition its most right of center uh in living memory at the same time it seems that there's often been a lot of uh criticism or unfair criticism i should say of israel uh using this right of center government as an excuse to sort of tarnish the entire uh, country or let's say push it far further than the actual reality uh, of the current Knesset composition is. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, it's not easy because the just, you know, even if they, the stories are being told completely factually and in an unbiased way, this government represents a lot of things that liberal people oppose. You know, the, the, there are a lot of messages coming out of people from this coalition, whether it's about gay rights, whether it's about the place of women in the family. I mean, at least they're not trying to pass laws about that, but there are things that people say, um, you know, just different social issues of education and things like that, that, that are, are just, you know, not going to play well in the world. Um, I mean, certainly not in the like New York Times and the Guardians of the world, not that Israel ever plays that well there anyway, but um, you can't lie, you can't make things up. <laughs> um, and so I think what you have to look at is to make sure that they're judging it sort of truthfully and fairly in the sense that, okay, this government hasn't done almost anything yet. It's barely passed any laws and laws tend to be somewhat technical, um, which, you know, there's problems with those laws maybe that we can talk about as well that people have with them, but, um, that's not really what the international press is interested in. Um, and so they should be judged. I, you know, you can't say don't judge them by their words because politicians are judged by their words, right? That's how we choose who to vote for. But um, you have to make sure that they're accurate and talk about statements versus actions. That, that's what I would say. But I, I also think like, you know, a lot of times people who love Israel and look at the international media complain about a double standard. But just as someone who has looked at elections in other parts of the world just in the last year, for example, and, and I would write articles about, you know, how will this government impact Israel, yes or no. You know, we also, uh, you look at places in the world, look at, uh, you know, Italy, for example, where they have a prime minister whose party was once a fascist party. And you also sort of draw conclusions based on their past statements and based on their histories. Um, so in this case, you it's hard even to complain about a double standard when it comes to that in particular. 
So how would you rate then the, uh, the media's coverage so far of the, the last few months? Would you say that other than, let's say, as you've described, sort of the usual suspects, those publications who are typically more uh, antagonistic to Israel, it sounds like you would describe it as mostly fair. Is that true? Or am I Look, misunderstanding? I, 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 <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't say that I've done like a, a thorough survey where I feel comfortable like giving a grade. But I do think that if you look like the coverage, if the coverage is going to be about homophobic statements, for example, or about trying to increase the role of religion in the public sphere, such as education, but also in other areas, and, and they're critical of those things. I just I I guess I would say it's fair because they would probably again because most of the mainstream media in the Western world right is is slightly to the left if not very to the left, um, you know that that's the attitude that they would have about people in their own countries or in any other country. So it's it's a um, it's a situation where you know the the reality will lend itself to negative coverage in a in a liberal media. Well, interesting. Well, I appreciate the uh, the insight. There's certainly been, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of challenges in terms of ensuring that the news media is uh, covering Israel fairly. Um, but uh, and that doesn't mean without any criticism, of course. But uh, certainly, there's been, I think, a lot of time when the criticism can be quite uh, ambiguous and go over that edge. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I do think when we talk about the Palestinian issue, a lot of the issues that have always existed still exist, right? Like there's like a deep misunderstanding and misrepresentation of Israel's sort of legitimacy in Judea and Samaria and things like that. So that some things never change. Absolutely. Uh, Lahav, how can people follow you on, uh, on social media? Um, I'm on Twitter at Lahav Barkov. Um, and of course I, I write for the Jerusalem Post, although I'm currently on leave for the next few months. Um, and I have a Substack as well. That is also my name, Lahav Barkov. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. Thank you. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.